Good evening once again. Our passage this evening will be Colossians 1.24 through 2.5. So we're crossing the chapter border. Uh, Colossians 1.24 through 2.5. And this uh, will be our first week in sort of the real body of Paul's letter. Uh, so far we've been looking at what you could call the introduction, verses 1 through 23 of chapter 1. Uh, but tonight, starting with verse 24, Paul gets into the main thrust of this epistle. So again, we'll be reading uh, verse 24 of chapter 1 through verse 5 of chapter 2. Let's hear what God has for us from his word tonight. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Open our eyes, Lord Jesus, to behold marvelous things in your word, that we may be amazed at your love, trust your promises, and seek always the free gifts that you came to give us poor sinners. In your most holy name we pray, amen. So kids, how many of you enjoy building things or making things or maybe painting or doing arts and crafts, that sort of thing? And if you ever do, uh, sometimes what makes it better is showing it to someone and having them say, good job, something like that, appreciate the work that you've done. We like other people to see and appreciate the things that we accomplish. Well, tonight we're looking at Paul's work of ministry, and he also desires to present the work, the results of his work to his heavenly father, but with some crucial differences from the way we often seek credit. Paul doesn't take the credit for the results. He gives the glory to God. And also, Paul endures much hardship for his apostolic mission, whereas our artistic productions and and such usually come quite easily, not without skill or talent, but usually without things like imprisonment and beatings. But, as we'll see as we look at at this passage tonight, Paul rejoices in his suffering and in his struggle to preach Christ, and his driving desire is to bring maturity to every believer. Verses 24 through 29 explain the joyful suffering Paul endures for the sake of that goal. And then verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 explain Paul's joyful struggle and his plan to accomplish his goal. So let's dive into our first point and start by examining verses 24 and 25, where Paul says this. 
Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, I don't have the statistics, but I would guess that verse 24 of Colossians chapter 1 is probably one of the most Googled verses uh, in the New Testament. What on earth could it mean that Paul fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? What could be lacking? What does he mean when he says afflictions? And how is Paul helping the situation? Well, there are a lot of answers out there, but I think we should start tonight by saying what we know this can't mean. Paul filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions does not mean that the atonement was deficient in any way or that some other human being besides Jesus had to finish the work that was started on the cross. Paul's the one who taught us that Christ's life and death, all the work he did and the death that he died, is all sufficient for salvation. So Paul's not saying that the atonement is deficient. But what then is he saying? Well, I think the first thing to note is that in this section, Paul is speaking metaphorically about his ministry. And the metaphor has to do with the world of finance or economy. So the phrase translated filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions is a part of that financial metaphor. The Greek words behind the terms what is lacking and fill up almost always occur together in a financial context. So the metaphor goes like this. The riches, later mentioned in verse 27, have been earned by Christ and Paul has been charged to disperse those riches to the Gentiles through his ministry. The riches have been credited to a number of people, a number of God's people among the Gentiles, but they haven't been transferred yet. So to fill up what is lacking is to make those payments of Christ's earned riches to the people who haven't received them, namely the Gentiles. So there's a real lack here, but it doesn't have to do with the riches Christ has accumulated. That wealth is fixed and secure and overflowingly abundant. But what remains lacking is the allocation of those riches to the Gentiles. They don't yet know about the kingdom wealth that has been earned for them by Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's Paul's job to tell them. That's how he fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And then in verse 25, the metaphor continues when Paul says that he became a minister according to the stewardship from God. And then Paul defines what this God-given stewardship means. His task is to disperse the account of God, or as the ESV reads, to make the word of God fully known. Now, the ESV committee has done something all translations have to do at one point or another. They've made an interpretive choice here. And that's great. The translation from one language to another necessitates interpretation at some level. And in this case, they've landed in a great spot and told us what Paul is getting at. But they've skipped over the metaphor, so I'd like to take a little time and, and bring that out. This verb rendered in the ESV as make known is actually related to the verb in the last verse that they translated fill up. So it really doesn't have to do with disclosing information. Instead, a great paraphrase that's consistent with the metaphor, the financial metaphor Paul is making, would be to disperse the account of God. So make fully known becomes disperse, and then the word of God becomes the account of God, which gets us into another issue. And it may seem like a stretch, but it's really not. The Greek word translated as word here, logos, one a lot of us are probably familiar with, maybe heard before, 
It's a very versatile word. It can mean lots of different things, but in financial contexts, like the one here in this metaphor, it can refer to an account of money, like a bank account. So we can see that verse 25 just continues describing Paul's apostolic ministry in terms of finance. Paul is commissioned by Christ to allocate the riches in God's bank account to the people those riches have been earned for. And this work of distribution is exactly what one would expect a servant with a stewardship to do. The duties of household servants in the first century Greek culture often included the management of finances. So again, just like in verse 24, the deficiency we see in verse 25 doesn't have to do with the quality or the quantity of God's account. His account is overflowing with riches. But it's the worldwide payout of those riches that needs to be completed. And that's Paul's job as a minister of God. And he does it by proclaiming the mystery. So that's what he gets into in verses 26 and 27. He disperses God's account, the riches that Christ has earned, by proclaiming God's mystery. As he says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So the first thing we need to establish here is the meaning of the word mystery. And basically it uh, expresses something that's unclear. So the mystery in this case is something that was present in the Old Testament, but shrouded in shadow. But at the time of Paul writing this letter, the mystery has been revealed. Paul says it is Christ in you, Christ in the Colossians, a primarily Gentile congregation, meaning that believing Jews and now Gentiles stand together because they have both been identified with Jesus. This mystery wasn't completely hidden in ages past. It was there, but in a kind of clouded way. It was evident to a small degree, but now it has been revealed publicly and historically in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And in verse 27, Paul goes on to explain more about the mystery. And the main focus of verse 27 is that the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles is Christ, and that Christ himself is the hope of glory. So first, the fact that Paul says, if you look at verse 27, God chose, underlines that it was his predetermined plan for the Gentiles to join his covenant community. It was not an accident. It wasn't a historical mistake. It was always God's purpose and plan to bless the nations of the world through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Second, the phrase riches of the glory or glorious riches refers back to the metaphor we mentioned a few minutes ago. Paul is talking about Christ's earned righteousness kept for believers in the bank account of God. By virtue of their union with Christ, Christians receive the credit for his active obedience and the secure hope that that active obedience provides, which is Christ himself. I should add as well that Paul's emphasis on Christ as the revealed mystery of God contradicts the false teachers striving for special visions. The Jewish mystical teachers taught that self-effort would result in the, the gaining of divine wisdom, the revelation of divine mysteries, but Paul says no. God chooses when, where, and how he reveals himself, and he's done that primarily, historically, through Jesus Christ. So we've seen so far how Paul disperses the wealth of God by proclaiming Christ to the Gentiles. 
Now in verses 28 and 29, we'll see a little bit more about Paul's apostolic mission and his goal. Let's reread those verses now. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So the first thing Paul says here is that we proclaim Christ. That's his duty as God's steward, as the steward of God's account. But he says we proclaim. So who is the we? Well, he might be directly referring to himself and Timothy, the two people mentioned in verse 1 of this letter in the introduction, the greeting. But it would also be right to say that Paul is including all ministers of the gospel, everyone who faithfully participates in the preaching of the true gospel. Because salvation only comes through Jesus, Paul and his fellow gospel messengers from the first century all the way up to the 21st and on preach Christ alone. And how do they do that? Paul says they do that by warning and teaching. Now, these two words are largely synonymous, but There's no such thing as an exact synonym, so what's the nuance here? Well, first, warning means notifying every person about his or her sinful condition. It means showing them their guilt under God's law and alerting them of the judgment that's coming their way. And then teaching means instructing everyone to flee to Christ for salvation. And did you notice who the recipients are of this proclamation? It says it three times there. Everyone, Paul is emphasizing, again, that God's redemptive revelation comes to Gentiles now, as well as Jews. There's no part of Christian teaching to be reserved for any particular ethnic group or any self-styled spiritual elite. All the truth of God is for all the people of God. And so Paul, as we've seen, he's been charged with dispersing Christ's riches to the Gentiles in order that, notice this, we may present everyone mature in Christ. This purpose statement is the heart of our passage tonight. And the focus is on the future. The idea here is that believers have already begun to be identified with Christ now, but at the end of history, they will be fully identified with and fully conformed to him. And this kind of gets into another issue of translation because if you look through different versions you'll see that the Greek here is almost always rendered either mature, as it it is here in the ESV, or perfect. I think the KJV does that, the New King James. But the problem is that neither of those words gets the whole idea. Mature is too weak, and perfect is too strong. You see, the Greek word doesn't have the same connotation of absoluteness as our English perfect does. But mature is too subjective. We could be tempted to think that we're mature in Christ as long as we can look at our brothers and sisters and say, at least I'm not sinning as much as he is, or at least I'm not doing that sin that he's doing. So we can't use just one word to convey everything that Paul was conveying to the Colossians, but we can still describe what he was communicating. And that's this. Someday all believers will be in a totally Christ-like condition. They will be fully conformed to Christ's image and put in a place beyond disease and death, beyond sin and suffering. And we know that kind of maturity is not attainable in this life. It's in the age to come. Yet there's still an application for the present. As the new creational community, 
the church should reflect some measure of heavenly maturity now. One writer put it well when he said that this maturity is not some vague notion of spiritual growth or moral progress, but it is an actualization of redemption in Christ in personal and corporate Christian living. An actualization of redemption in Christ in personal and corporate Christian living. As spirit-filled people, Christians and the New Covenant community should be a community wholly turned to God in love and wholly willing to serve one another in love, all the while still looking forward to the full and complete maturity that we will have on that final day. So Paul's goal is clear, but how can he fulfill this task of presenting everyone, Jews and Gentiles, fully mature in Christ? Through toil and struggling. Paul often uses these words to describe his ministry. He was lashed, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he starved, he was imprisoned. Paul toiled and struggled more than many of us could imagine. But like Dr. Van Drunen said this morning, these afflictions were not the evidence of God's curse on Paul. They weren't a judgment. They were part of God's plan to use him for the apostolic ministry, to spread the gospel, to preach the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to the very people who would repay him with beatings and imprisonment. But lest we start to think that Paul deserves some great commendation for how perseverant and tough he is, he adds this in verse 29, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul's toil is not a self-sufficient toil. He's only able to carry on because of God's power. He's making sure that none of his hearers think that his ministry is rooted in his own ability. It's not the case that Paul gives everything he has, and then God does the rest. Rather, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. Paul is not the center of God's work in history. That center is the Christ Paul proclaims. Now, we're ready to move on to chapter 2 and Paul's joyful struggle. So verse 1 of chapter 2 says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. In this verse, we see that Paul says he's not only struggling for the Colossians, but also for the Laodiceans. And if you remember back to our first evening in this epistle, uh, it's been a while now, uh, I'm pretty sure I said it. Laodicea is in the same geographical region as Colossae. It was about 10 miles northwest in this place called the Lycus Valley. And what Paul is doing, transitioning to chapter 2, he's zooming in from this broader view of his apostolic ministry to a specific application to specific people in a particular geographical region. And he starts by mentioning how great a struggle he has on their behalf. He could be talking about his current imprisonment. Remember, he's writing this letter from Rome in prison. We're not exactly sure what he has in mind, but in any case, we should note the dedication that he has in spreading the gospel to people he hadn't met personally and that in a place he hadn't been. He's taking the charge 
uh, his charge of the steward of God's account, the apostle to the Gentiles, seriously. And then in verses 2 and 3, he says this about those people. He struggles in order that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. These verses give us a fuller understanding of God's mystery, what Paul first brought up a few verses ago in chapter 1, verse 26. And I should mention up front something that I've mentioned, alluded to quite a few times about the heresy, the false teaching that was facing the Colossian church. A lot of the Jewish mystical writings focused on and talked about gaining wisdom through heavenly visions or these spiritual ascents into heaven. And the knowledge that a person would gain of divine mysteries through those experiences was sometimes too much for people to handle, sometimes it was enlightening, but in any case it was restricted to a small group of elite individuals. This elitism and divisiveness that was a part of the Jewish mystical teaching was threatening to infiltrate the Colossian church. And sadly, it sometimes infiltrates our churches today. However we draw the line, we have a tendency to create two classes of Christians, the elite the really spiritual Christians, the ones who seemingly have it all together, and then the ordinary. You know, they, they've been coming to church for a while. They're probably saved, but that's about all you can say about them. Maybe we draw that line on the issue of parenting or education. Maybe it's drawn on who you vote for. Maybe the line is drawn on a particular view of creation or science or eschatology. Maybe it's drawn on how long you read your Bible and pray every day. And whether or not you're on the right side of that line makes you a better or worse Christian. It either takes you to the next level or you remain on the B team. But Paul will not tolerate any of these attempts to divide the body of Christ. In verses 2 and 3, Paul asserts that knowledge and wisdom, the particular lines that were drawn at Colossae, are rooted in Christ who has been revealed to all Christians, to everyone. So with that background in mind, let's look at these verses a little closer. First, we see that Paul says the aim of his struggling is that their hearts may be encouraged. And here when he says heart, he's just referring to the inner spiritual core of a person. So he's aiming for total encouragement. And he also says that this encouragement will take place as they are united or knit together in love. He wants their love for one another to grow as they become increasingly aware that they're all on the same path to full and complete spiritual maturity in Christ. They're not to be divided in petty arguments. They're to be united as one people who have experienced the same powerful, redeeming grace of God in Christ. Additionally, we see that Paul is struggling to encourage them in order that they may reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul wants them to be completely convinced of the gospel and to understand it as thoroughly as possible. It's for that end that Paul was willing, that he was joyous, that he rejoiced in going through the suffering 
and the struggle that he endured in his ministry. Next, in verse 3, we find the final pieces of an allusion to Proverbs 2, verses 3 through 6, which says this, If you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. This combination of wisdom understanding, knowledge, and hidden treasure is unique in the Old Testament. You can't find another passage that has all of those words. And they're also here in Colossians. And what Paul is saying is that Christ is the source of all true wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and treasure. Those things are hidden in him. They are kept in him. Now, it was common for the Jews to think of the law, the Torah, as the epitome of divine wisdom. But Paul has a different answer. From its first inscription, Paul teaches us, the law, the old law of Israel, pointed to Christ. And the Colossians, who are now in Christ, have access to genuine knowledge and wisdom through the mystery of Christ who has been revealed to them. Not through the law, but because Christ has been revealed through Paul's toilsome struggle to preach the gospel. Now, in verses 4 and 5, we see Paul change topics from the Christ he preaches and some of the results of that to the false teachers he is opposing. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So when Paul says, I say this, he's referring to this uh, discussion he's had about the mystery of God, verses 1, 26 through 2, 3. And he provides the reason why he's been explaining that fact, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Or in other words, that no one would deceive you by means of enticing, um, appealing speculation. Paul is saying that his hearers ought to be fixated on Christ and avoid any distraction that might cause them to turn their eyes away from Christ. He is the sole source of heavenly wisdom and knowledge. No speculation, no extraordinary spiritual experience is necessary. And then finally, in verse 5, Paul says that no one should delude the Colossians with false teaching because he's with them in spirit, even though he's absent in body. And we see here, as I mentioned earlier in this series, Paul considers this letter that's being read to the Colossians to represent his authoritative presence in that church. Although he's never met most of them face to face, he hasn't been there, he's still instructing them. He's still encouraging them through his letter. And he's also rejoicing to see their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. And what he's talking about here is their correct doctrine, their right teaching as opposed to the false teaching and the false doctrine that he's just mentioned in verse 4. And to maintain that good doctrinal order, they must maintain their focus on Christ and Christ alone. And as they do so, they will remain firm. So that closes our exposition of this, um, this passage. But before we pray and close tonight's service, I want to make one more application And it has to do with taking seriously what Paul has said about a Christ-centered ministry. We've seen in this passage that 
God has commissioned Paul as the steward of his account to proclaim Christ, the source of all wisdom and knowledge and understanding and the revealed mystery of God, in order that everyone may be presented fully mature in Christ. And those needs are still with us today. The Christ-centered ministry Paul is advocating and that he participated in is as needed for our church, for the church today, as it was for the first century church. First, because we're still a sinful people. We have lots of sins in our church. Abuse, both physical and spiritual. Unwarranted or casual divorce. A consumer mindset that only thinks about what can I get out of coming to church rather than what can I give. Gossip, backbiting, lying, deceiving. The list could go on. Second, we face the challenges that are common to all people living in 21st century America. Anti-intellectualism, hyper-intellectualism, technology that's progressing at a rate no one can keep up with, finding out how to deal with that, and social media dividing people, isolating people, and also navigating cultural hot topics, sexuality, gender, racial issues. And finally, a challenge we face as the church today Perhaps most relevant to this passage tonight are issues of unity, challenges to our fellowship. Sometimes our expectations for fellowship are too high. We have an over-realized view of the maturity that Paul has been talking about. We think everyone should be nearly perfect, if not perfect now. And when reality sets in, we quit on one another rather than bearing with one another in their weakness and in their sin. Other times we can value our opinions more than people, more than our fellow brothers and sisters, and follow the lead of our increasingly polarized culture, either severing relational ties completely or just damaging our relationships over petty arguments, petty disagreements. These are big challenges for us, but we know that all of these sins and all of these challenges find their solution in Christ and Christ alone. And we can be thankful for faithful ministers, both in our federation and other denominations, who continually and consistently preached the law and the gospel. But remember that Paul's desire was for all believers to be encouraged, to be knit together in love, to be united, to be full of understanding. We all have work to do. The church should be a place of hope and encouragement, a place where we help one another on our path to spiritual maturity, to full maturity, the heavenly maturity that awaits us, supporting one another as we grow, not tearing one another down. Remember also that Paul suffered as an apostle to the Gentiles, people who many of his fellow Jews deemed unworthy of anything good. But God's purpose is clear. The church is to be inclusive of all kinds of people, welcoming those we may not have much in common with, those we may not like very much. We cannot decide who's eligible to receive the riches of Christ and who isn't. We can't make anything a test of fellowship that's not a credible profession of faith in Christ. As the church of God, we should strive and toil and struggle because it will be difficult to reach every kind of person in love and to become more and more united with one another in love. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing so. Thank you tonight, Father, for your word to us, 
for this letter to the Colossians and for this passage that we've looked at tonight, where we've seen that Paul has suffered and struggled for the sake of the church, for the Colossians, for the Laodiceans, and down the line for us today. Thank you for Christ, God's revealed mystery, the revealed mystery um, that you have revealed to everyone, to all people, publicly and historically in the death of your son, Jesus Christ, and in his resurrection. We thank you for the ministry of Paul, that he was willing and joyful to go through all kinds of toil and struggling to present Christ to everyone, Jew and Gentile. And we thank you for ministers who are doing the same today and pray that you would uphold them in that cause. We pray that the results of that ministry would be fruitful in us, your people, that we would be encouraged, that we would be united, that we would come to a fuller and deeper assurance and understanding of your gospel that would spur us on to love one another and not divide the body that you have put together. And in that process, I pray that we would also be kept from all false teaching by focusing on Christ and Christ alone, in whose name we pray tonight. Amen.